Uh, open your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel 21. I'm going to do something a little unorthodox this morning, and uh, trust me when I say that I'm not starting a precedent. I'm, you know, this may just be the only time we do it, and if you are not physically able, please do not feel any sort of uh, pressure whatsoever, but I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we read the passage this morning in honor and respect for God's Word. I love there in Nehemiah that uh, Ezra, right, when he opened up the book, the people stood, and they stood for a lot longer than we're going to stand right now. Um, and also the Lord Jesus, right, in the city of Nazareth, when he came into the synagogue, what did he do? He opened up the book and he stood up. So just this morning, I just felt like I just wanted to honor uh, the Lord's word here. By let's, let's stand together and let's read this together and then we're going to sit down and we'll look at some of these things here. Alright, again, if, while we're reading, if you feel you need to sit down, please sit down, it's alright, okay? Second Samuel chapter 21, now there was a famine in the day of David for three years. Year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered. It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. And so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so the king took Armani and, uh, uh, and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, uh, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, Barzillai and Mahalathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the First days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took the sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the fields by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son and the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up, after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. And so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, uh, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer 
for the land. And this is a good part right here, right? When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jer Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Just verse 1 is the last one here of chapter 22. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. The Lord will bless the reading of his word. This morning, let's just open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for your precious word. We pray that um, you would be so gracious as to give us understanding this day, that we may practically apply your word to our lives uh, so that we can increase in our knowledge of you, that we may glorify you uh, in and through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Woo, what a great story. Uh, I read verse 1 of chapter 22 because I really believe that uh, the context of our portion here, right, is a cause for relief and a cause for rejoicing. All right, David has a, a reason uh, for, to kind of breathe, a sigh of relief, and he's got good reason to rejoice now as well. And so we're going to be looking at this morning the, the providence and the power of God in sustaining David and his kingdom. Today we're going to look at the providence and power of God as it sustained David and his kingdom. If we can, we're going to try to divide this uh, chapter into two parts. Verses 1 to 14 is deliverance from sins within the camp. Deliverance from sins within the camp. And then in chapters 5, verses 15 to 22, deliverance from giants outside the camp. Okay? Deliverance from giants Outside the camp. And so in this first part, verses 1 to 14, uh, we're going to look at uh, this final deliverance, if you will, from the sins of Saul. You'll see here that uh, there's a famine uh, that's going on. And it's been going on for three years. Right? Three years we read in verse 1, year after year. And we also uh, learn that it was attributed uh, to the sins of Saul. But my first point today that we have, we have three points and we're looking at the life of David, right? Um, and we're going to be looking at three positive things, if you will, uh, in the life of David is this. The first point 
uh, today is that uh, trials in our lives should require us to inquire. Trials in our lives should require us to inquire. I think David is a great example here is that here there's a famine. Now, there's one thing you could look at here is maybe if he inquired earlier, it wouldn't have gone on for three years. I don't know. But the Bible doesn't say that. It does say, though, that there's a famine going on for three years. And David, I love this, in uh, verse 1, it says, And David inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. David recognized that this famine um, was a divine chastening. He recognized that. He goes to God and he says, listen, why is this happening? Hey, what, what, what do we need to do um, to remedy uh, this divine chastening? And he, and he asks God for the reason. You know, what, what is the reason why we're experiencing this famine for three years? Now, also it's important to know, too, that this is much later in David's life, too. David's an old guy. At this point, too, an older guy. And um, so he, he recognizes this famine as divine chastening, and he inquires of the Lord. And then just really quick, as far as some context here, is that uh, if you recall way back in, in Joshua chapter 9, uh, the, the Israelites, under the command of Joshua, had just defeated um, the city of Ai. They defeated Jericho. And they're on their way now to defeat these other enemies of God. There are some who got together, the Amorites, um, amongst some other groups. And there was one group of the Amorites called the Gibeonites. And they actually were very knowledgeable of what uh, was said about God's people and that they were to inherit the entire land, that God was going to give it to them. And so they actually come up with a pretty good idea. They say, you know what, let's pretend that we're like these sojourners. We'll pretend that we've been going a long distance and we'll come to Joshua and say, hey, listen, we, we pledge our allegiance to you. Whoever you guys are fighting, we'll fight with you, uh, hoping that Joshua and them would not understand that they're actually part of the enemies that they're supposed to defeat. Okay? And so what happens is they uh, make an oath with them. Joshua and the people of God make an oath with the Gibeonites saying, we will not lay a hand on you. Well, a little premature because three days later they found out that who they really were. And at that point, they could not break the oath. But because of that, uh, Joshua pronounced a curse on them, and these Gibeonites ended up being their servants. But because of that oath, they could not lay a hand on them. So we don't read anywhere in Scripture other than here in chapter 21 that Saul, for some reason, in his zeal for the, for the people of God, decided one day, hey, I'm going to kill the Gibeonites. And he broke that oath. He, he tried to kill uh, these ones in which we had made an oath with. And so, as God says here to David... Um, that because Saul had slain some of the Gibeonites whom Israel had made a treaty with, this is the reason for a famine for three years. Three years. I just think it's very interesting, right? That the same Saul, right, who failed to slaughter the Amalekites, right, when God told him to, slaughtered the Gibeonites when he was not supposed to. Saul is a a poor example uh, for us to follow. But when you think about this, right, it seems pretty harsh, right, that here the nation of Israel is experiencing famine in the land for three years because of someone who's not even around anymore. He's dead. He's dead. And yet the sins of Saul still permeate, still have consequences with the people of God, even at this point right now. Right? We see that today, don't we? We see that there are. 
the sins of people that can affect those of an innocent party. Right? I was thinking about the, uh, the NCAA. Right? Uh, they have uh, sanctions against teams a lot of times because of what a coach did. And a lot of times players on those teams are affected by those sanctions even after the coach is gone. Hey, they may be ineligible for tournaments or ineligible to play. And one of the ones I just was uh, thinking about again was remember the, the whole story, if you don't remember, of um, uh, Jerry Sandusky right, with Penn State. Right? And we remember the whole story that came out with Joe Paterno and things like that. But I don't know if you're ever familiar with what, what actually the, the sanctions that were announced uh, to this team. Um, the NCAA announced that against Penn State, they would include a ban on all postseason football through the 2015 season. All right? There was a reduction in scholarships from 85 to 65 from, uh, for the 2014 through the 2017 season, a $60 million fine, and the striking of 111 wins from, 100, from 1998 to 2011 in the record books. It's harsh sanctions, isn't it? And the players had nothing to do with it, right? The, the campus, the team, Penn State, had nothing to do with what this guy Jerry Sandusky did and what Joe Paterno allowed to happen. But they suffered the consequences, didn't they, for these guys' sins? And so it's not something that's very foreign to us. We see a lot of times that the sins of men and women can certainly have effects on those who may be innocent. How often, right, does um, sin affect the work of God? You remember uh, that battle of Ai there, where they had won, or, or Jericho? I apologize, um, but where Achan, right? Achan, they were not to take anything from there, and Achan took uh, some of the spoils and he hid it under his tent, right? And because of that, people lost their lives in the next battle because of this one man's sin. Right? And not only that, but then when Joshua sought the Lord and found out that it's because of Achan's sin, right? All of Achan's family were killed, put to death, because of one man's sin, right? So we hear a lot of times, right, that, you know, you don't realize that when there's sin in the camp, how it affects everyone, everyone. Please understand that your sin does not just affect you, right? If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are part of now the body of Christ, your sin has effects on the body. Hey, you as a parent, your sins affect your family. Hey, you can't just say, oh, this is between me and God right now. No, sin has terrible consequences. Here we see the sins of one man, Saul, affecting an entire nation, a three-year famine. And we're going to see a little bit, too, that it's going to demand an atonement for those wrongs as well. But just some application really quickly when we look at this, this uh, story of, of uh, David inquiring and uh, Saul's sin here is that it's important for us to understand, too, that time does not hide our sin. Please understand that. And the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. It may be five years. It may be 50 years. Right? Maybe a couple days. Right? But do not think that time will hide your sin. Time does not hide it, nor does time erase your sin. (laughs) We will face consequences. You know, there are giants, as we just read, uh, outside the camp right now. There are Philistines who still are enemies and want to attack the people of God, right? But the thing to fear 
for the people of God at this point right now are not the giants of the world who are outside, but the sin within the church and within their hearts. I've said this many times, right? But if Satan cannot cause division from without, he loves to create dissension from within. So here, the people of God, they should have feared more um, this sin within the camp, the sin amongst themselves, even more than the giants outside, although they were a threat as well. Also, I want us to understand that, that God treats covenant commitments as serious business. God treats um, covenant oaths, covenant commitments as serious business. This covenant that was made with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9 was 400 years ago. 400 years have passed since that covenant was made. Is it still important to God? Yes, it is. Don't understand that when God makes a covenant, okay, it is serious, serious to him. And as I said, uh, it's very important for us right, to seek the presence of the Lord. You know, I thought it was an interesting contrast again is that when you go back to Joshua 9, you don't have to. I'll, uh, I'll read it for you. But when that happened, right, when the Gibeonites tricked right, and deceived Joshua, it's very interesting what the scriptures say. Um, in Joshua chapter 9, it says this. Um, so remember what I said the Gibeonites said? They, they tricked them, right? And it says that the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Nobody can read this. They did not inquire of the Lord. They made the oath and then found out three days later, uh-oh. Okay? So it's interesting. This whole thing came about. By the people of God not inquiring of the Lord, not seeking the Lord. But here David is a tremendous example for us. That David seeks the Lord. We need to remember that. Seeking the presence of the Lord uh, amidst whatever is going on in our lives. And I think this is important too. Is that we need to look behind the trial to the underlying cause. I think it's a great question, right? David, it says... um, that he inquired of the Lord, right? And the Lord answered. Um, and then David, of course, went to the Gibeonites and said, hey, listen, what should I do? Uh, I think it's so important for us to look beyond the trial sometimes to the underlying cause. Hey, how often do we experience um, uh, difficulties, right? Whatever it may be, and we never once seek the Lord on it. It's very important for us to look beyond it and say, okay, what's the underlying cause of this? Is there sin in my life? Right? Sin many times can be the reason for difficult circumstances. It could be divine chastening of the Lord. But how few times do we, do we not want to go there? We don't want to look at our own lives and be like, you know what? Maybe there's a reason God's allowing this to happen right now in my life. Maybe there's still something in my life. We were just uh, listening to... Uh, uh, Rod Dewberry this weekend, and, and talking about how various trials produce patience, right? And I was just talking to Tyler about that, and, and Rod did a good job. Listen, sometimes those trials, those things, is because God wants to cut your legs out from you. So you stop supporting yourself. There's that area in your life where you're still not giving it to him. And he's got to keep bringing chastisement. He's still got to bring trials till you get it. But also sometimes he just sends them to us for our own strengthening. But David is a tremendous example here is that trials in our lives should require us to inquire. Inquire the Lord. Look 
behind the trial to the underlying cause. Is there sin in my life? Is this the Lord's just strengthening me right now? Strengthening my relationship with Him? And then, of course, uh, lastly, is that God's sense of justice demands atonement for wrongs. God's sense of justice demands atonement for wrongs. And so let's look at this atonement, right? David um, asks uh, the Gibeonites, and it's interesting that David would ask them, right? Because, again, these are low people. They're, they're, uh, they're not highly uh, looked at very highly. And yet David, as the king, humbles himself and goes to them and says, hey, listen, what do you want me to do? You know, it would be, be interesting, right? You know, when God says, hey, listen, you guys are suffering because of Saul's sin to the Gibeonites, David would say, well, listen, it's the Gibeonites. You know, um, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. But David humbles himself and goes to them and says, listen, what, what can we do? Um, but here I think we just see a beautiful, um, beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel in so many ways. Okay? In so many ways. So I'd like you to just take this journey with me right now as we look at um, what the Gibeonites, this whole conversation between David and the Gibeonites and what actually happens, right? As it foreshadows uh, the beautiful gospel uh, for each and every one of us. One, <clears throat> not only does this story remind us that God relates to men by means of covenants. That's how God relates to men. I encourage you to go back in the Bible and study all the covenants. Okay? Each time God enters into relationships with mankind through covenants. Right? Yeah, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Adamic covenant. All these covenants through scripture. Okay? The Mosaic covenant. But this is, again, how God relates to men. He relates to men by means of his covenants. But not only that, but this beautiful text that we have today, it speaks to us particularly of the new covenant. I'll show you how. First of all, Saul's sins, right, had to be atoned for before God's blessings could be enjoyed. Saul's sins had to be atoned for uh, or God's blessings could not be enjoyed. You see, sin alienates us from God's presence and God's favor. Right? Sin separates us from God. You can see in the context here that God is not answering their prayers. Because it says once this whole thing goes through, once David, out of respect, buries uh, Saul's and Jonathan's bones and kind of um, makes everything right, and we're going to get to that in a second, right? it says then God answered their prayers. There was a separation here. Right? There's a separation. And that's what sin does. Right? In this new covenant, we need to understand that sin alienates us from God. It separates us from Him. We become separated or alienated from not only God's presence, but also God's favor. Saul's sin had brought adversity, didn't it? In the form of this famine. Right? Saul's sin had brought adversity uh, in the form of this famine. So judgment... Right of famine, at least in this case, was designed to awaken their conscience, right, and to show them their need for reconciliation. Doesn't God still do that today? Right. There are many who face adversity in various kinds, right, and many times it's to awaken their conscience. Right. We live in a world where people need to be, you know, awakened and realize their need for reconciliation, that they're separated. Right? That their sins 
has alienated them from God's presence, from God's favor. And God, we, we read all the time of various things that people have used in their lives where God used that to direct them towards him, right? To get them to realize that they had a need before they never realized they had a need until something happened, right? Financial straits or a tragedy or whatever it is. God uses those things. But I love this, right? Here's the key question. Right? I think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. In verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? Right? And look what he says. And with what shall I make atonement? Isn't that the question of this world? Right? With what? How, how, how is atonement going to be made? Right? With what is God going to make atonement? Alright, yes, I have sins. I'm separated. I'm alienated from the presence and favor of God. What can make atonement for my sins? David says, what? What can be done? What can be done so that this sin can be atoned for? Notice, and this is so true of the new covenant and of the gospel, right? Notice their, their answer. The answer is determined by who? The offended party. The answer is determined by the offended party, not the invention of the sinner. Do we see that today? Right? The sinner is deciding what makes atonement today. Right? In this story we see here, no. The atonement is defined by that who is offended or who is offended. The offended party. They're the ones that decide what will make atonement. They'll decide what will bring them back into favor, back into enjoying those blessings. It is God who makes that decision. He is the offended party. And He decides what can be done to make atonement. Not the invention of the sinner. The invention of the sinner would say, right? Well, listen, I could do enough things, right? I could do enough good works, and that will make atonement, right? But no, it is determined by the offended party. I love what they say too, right? They say, the Gibeonites said, we, have, we will have no silver or gold, right? Money can't atone for your sin. We are not purchased with corruptible things, right? Like silver and gold. Um, which you receive from the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish, without spot. Money cannot atone for this, right? Look at what else he says. It says, uh, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. In other words, you're not, we're not going to take matters into our own hands, right? So not only can money not atone for our sin, but atonement cannot uh, be earned by good works. Right? Atonement can only be earned by the shedding of blood. And so here, what do we see, right? We see the new covenant right here. We see the gospel unfold as what? What was the only thing that could atone for Saul's sins? Substitutionary death. It's the only thing. There had to be shedding of blood. Here we see a substitutionary death. It was the shedding of this blood which brought about atonement. And it appeased both God and the Gibeonites. 
praise God for the gospel. God um, determined what the atonement was. And his son was our substitutionary sacrifice. It was by his shedding of blood that we now also um, get to enjoy um, those blessings of God. We get to enjoy God's presence, enjoy God's favor. Not something that we could have purchased. Not something that we could do based on our own works. Right? Only by a substitutionary death. And you'll notice here, uh, there's, a, there's a selecting and a sparing of required victims, right? Um, Greg uh, uh, touched on this already a little bit. Is uh, We see mercy from Mephibosheth, huh? You see, what they decided was, okay, listen, money and gold, silver and gold we don't need. We don't need, um, you know, to kill anybody in Israel for us. But the man who did this will take seven of his, his descendants. Okay? Just give us seven of them. They will be the substitutionary sacrifice to make atonement. And we see here that they grab two of Saul's sons and five of his grandsons. Okay? And these ones, and again, um, the Gibeonites, I think it shows, again, some of their uh, mercy, is that uh, they decide not to go by a route of crucifixion. In other words, these men, as you read here, are hanged, but they're killed before they're hung. They almost have a sense of mercy there. Uh, the hanging of them was to show everyone a public display of the judgment that came because of the sin. Uh, but again, I think in mercy, they were killed before they were hung. Crucifixion, you, you die in the process of it. Okay? Terrible, terrible way to go. But again, interesting contrast. Right? For the Lord Jesus, um, he didn't enjoy that privilege. Okay? He had to uh, suffer leading to his death. But here, <clears throat> um, David, again, another great example in choosing these descendants of Saul, he shows, again, mercy for Mephibosheth. And again, this is just a tremendous example of David's faithfulness to covenant oaths. We just talked about this, right? Are covenant oaths important to God? Yes, extremely. Did David make a covenant oath with Jonathan? Yes, he did. And so here we see mercy from Mephibosheth. And David is faithful to that covenant oath, right? Again, what a tremendous contrast, right? Saul was not um, committed uh, or faithful to the covenant that was made with the Gibeonites. And this is why we're here in this portion now, because he was not faithful to it. Even amidst all this, David remains faithful to the covenant oath that was made um, to Jonathan. And then you also see the selection, right? Again, we talked about this. This whole idea here is the providence, right, and the sustaining power that God uses for David and his kingdom. Right? God knows what he's doing. Right? Not only did this, the selection of Saul's offspring, right, appease God and appease the Gibeonites, right, but these are the sons who would have challenged David's sons for the throne. Do you see that? Right? Tremendous example of God's providence in David's life. God's removing those things that would be a challenge to David and his kingdom. That God wanted to establish. He removes these ones, right? God providentially removes the sons of Saul and his grandsons. He removes them from the scene. And so there is this, this sense of closure, uh, if you will, okay, 
uh, things that were left undone, right? Things that were not dealt with under Saul's administration are now made right by David. They're made right by David. The sin of Saul and his bloody house against the Gibeonites had been atoned for, right? And the land once again got to enjoy God's blessings. Um, we won't get into this, this whole part with uh, Rizpah for time's sake, um, but that's a neat, neat story too in that um, not only are these seven sons of Saul given a proper burial, but when David sees what Rizpah does, he himself goes and gets Saul and Jonathan as well. And he gives them a proper burial as well out of respect uh, for that family. Right? And so as we see there uh, at the end of that, that first section, we talk about verse 14, God then heeded the prayer for the land, right? Listen, trials, trials in our lives uh, should require us to inquire. Seek the presence of the Lord, right? Look beyond the trial to see what is the underlying cause here. Um, but not only that, we get into this next part of this chapter, which is a lot of fun. We've got deliverance now from giants outside the camp. So not only do we see deliverance, right? We already looked at deliverance from sin within the camp. Now we've got these giants, right, from outside the camp. Listen, there will always be giants attacking the people of God. Always be giants. Right? Yes, David had defeated Goliath, the giant from Gath. He's got descendants. (laughs) Right? Goliath, though dead, is succeeded by his offspring. There will always be giants. And these, these guys... They continued to walk in their father's oversized footsteps. Um, and so we read here how David goes out to fight, and he almost gets killed by one of them. Right? One, of, one of the sons of the giant, uh, Ishbi Benab. Right? It says that David goes out there, and David falls faint. Right? As I said, he's not a young spring chicken anymore. Right? He's an older guy. And he's out there fighting, and this guy sees, oh, man, David is, is pretty faint. This is my chance, man. Um, revenge for my father. Kill the king of Israel. I'm going to kill this guy. And uh, very well probably would have uh, killed David if it wasn't for uh, Abishai, right, uh, the son of Zeruiah. Right? He comes to his aid, and he kills him. In fact, it says that this guy, um, Ishbi and Ab, uh, he could throw a spear that was 300 shekels. And so I was looking at it. That's about a 65-pound spear. Right, so we're at the gym. I was thinking about that, taking those 65 dumbbells and trying to throw it. I'm like, man, that's just crazy. Crazy. And then even later on, it talks about that one of their shafts was the size of a weaver's beam. And I was looking at that too. Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen those weaving machines. And they've got the, I think the, the, the dowels were like two and a half inches in diameter or something like that. But um, these guys were giants, huge guys. One guy even has six fingers on each hand, six toes. Um, it's kind of funny, kind of redundant. They're like 24 and all. We're like, all right, thanks. <laughs> um, but you got these giants here, and uh, you'll see that these other three, these other three sons of this giant, they're all killed too, all by uh, one of the men of David. But you see here that David, uh, in this first experience with the first giant, he's almost killed. Abishai comes to his aid, and then they say, hey, David, listen, you don't need to come out with us anymore. You know what? Um, there was a time where you fought for us. And there's a time now you fought with us. You don't even have to fight with us anymore. We, we got this. Okay? And, and what you see here is uh, David no more going to war. 
This is it for David. Remember, this is, remember James, way back in the beginning when we learned about David. David was a, a man of valor, a, a warrior. Okay? And, and now he's come to the end of that. He can't fight anymore. Okay? And so just two things I just want to bring out here um, in looking at this, this last part of this chapter is um, there are certainly, uh, this, this gives us right, some idea of the dangers uh, to which David was exposed to, right? Uh, in his military life. Um, dangers, you know, manifold. They're sometimes very overwhelming, uh, but not necessarily fatal. Um, and so, again, I, I just think that this enables to, us to see just the wonderful deliverances uh, that were experienced. Um, and so, again, I, I read chapter 22, verse 1, because I think these deliverances, right, are, are what um, prepares David to enter into a, th- a song of thanksgiving. Right? That the sins of Saul now have been taken care of. Here, these giants, the descendants of Goliath, they're now taken care of. And so these deliverances of God, right? God's providential care, His sustaining power in David is now prepared him to enter into a song of thanksgiving, which I think we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, right? So not only should trials, right, require us to inquire, but God's providential care and sustaining power should require us to admire. David entered into um, a a time of thanksgiving. He was prepared um, to enter into a song of thanksgiving. We read that that he writes this song, and the song is just amazing uh, when he considers all the deliverances of God in his life. As I said, giants will never stop attacking Christians. You may have had giants in your life. You may have them right now. Right? But can't you look back at times where God delivered you? Maybe He's delivering you right now. There'll be times coming up where God will deliver you. Right? There are times when you can look back in God's providence in your life, right? God's providential care in your life, right? God's sustaining power in your life. Right? Those times are to prepare us to enter into a song of thanksgiving as with David here. Take a moment of this week and just consider God's providence in your life, God's sustaining power in your life. Allow it to bring you into okay, a song of thanksgiving. And get real practical. I would even encourage you to write a song, write a poem, write a thank you note, something. And write it to God. It's just from you to the Lord. No one else needs to see it. Right? And if nothing else, you and your family, when you sit around the table, right, ask them. Say, listen, where do we see God's providence today? Right? Where do we see God sustaining us today? Have that conversation with your wife, your husband. Have that conversation with your children. Again, we were listening to to Rod uh, this weekend. It was so encouraged. It's like, listen, you got worship homework to do. You can't just come in here on Sundays, right, and just go through the procedures, right? You have gospel homework, um, worship homework, I mean, that each and every day you should be looking at and trying to find, man, how was God sustaining me today? How did God deliver me today? So that you are brought into and prepared into a song of thanksgiving. You can't just kind of try to manufacture it when you get here. Hey, it's not something you can try to manufacture on a, on a 
given time. It should be an ongoing thing all the time. And David, we see here, uh, this happens. But not only that, for the few minutes I have left here, is, uh, this to me encouraged me the most. Um, is that I, I love the fact, um, this story here enables us to understand how instrumental these men were um, in, in which he achieved, right, so, so brilliant a success, right? The kind of men by whom he was helped, David we're talking about. Um, the kind of spirit, right, which they were inspired. Their intense personal devotion to David himself. As I said already, the army of Israel has reached the point where David needs no longer to fight their battles for them, right? Or even with them. And so this is my last point today, right? Is that Christian leadership, right, should require us to retire. Christian leadership should require us to retire. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, Retire uh, can actually mean to to step aside. Um, And so... Here, um, I love how God does not leave David alone um, to fight against the forces, of the, uh, against his enemies, right? And certainly with us too, God does not leave his people to fight alone against the forces of this world. And again, I just think this is an important lesson in leadership. You know, often uh, people want leaders who will do their job for them. Often people do want leaders who will do their job for them. I believe the greatness and contribution of a leader are judged. Um, the greatness and contribution of a leader are judged by how big a hole is left when he steps aside. Have you heard that before? Right. A lot of times I, I've heard that, and, I, I, and they, they judge leadership based on, um, or the greatness of that leader by how big a hole is left when they step aside. Um, I believe, according to this, um, and in biblical terms, this should be an insult to a godly leader. If you are to step aside and remove yourself and you leave a hole, then this should be an insult to you. You see, the task of leaders is not to do everything. The task of a leader is to facilitate ministry, to train, to equip, to encourage others who will take our place and do an even better job than we can. This is what Christian leadership is to be. David was a great leader. Let's take us back to Saul's leadership. There was a giant then, wasn't there? Right? And the giant came. How many men fought that giant for Saul? None. David really wasn't one of Saul's men. He was just there bringing some food to his brothers, right? But none of Saul's men. Here, we have another leader, leader David, right? And we have four giants. And David doesn't have to fight any of them. Four men stop and say, David, we got this. Four of his own men. Say, no problem, we'll take care of this for you. That's a great sign of leadership. David's at a point in his life where he has trained his men, He's equipped his men, and his men are ready to fight for him now. Those of you who are in leadership here in this chapel, right? 
Is that your goal? Not that for some reason you leave here to leave a hole behind. That's an insult to us. But are we training and equipping those under our leadership so that they can now go fight for us? And they can even do a better job than we did. Parents, your children, right? Is that your goal, right? So that when you leave this earth or whatever circumstance happens in your life, that your children will be able to go on and they'll do an even better job than you did. Right? We look at always those, those quivers, right? The, the arrows full of quivers, right? Those arrows are able to reach farther than you can, Right? Our children are going to be able to reach a generation that we can't reach. David understood this. I think David was a tremendous leader. Uh, In that, um, I said, these men, many of them, were willing and able to do so. And so David now is free to step aside. First as the commander of the military, and next as king. He's going to step aside. He's no longer going to be the commander of the armies. He's no longer going to be king. But he didn't step aside because he did his job as a leader. Godly leadership, Christian leadership, should require us to retire, to step aside. How many assemblies are hurting today because men who are 80 years old were unwilling to step aside? I see it. I see it all the time. Assemblies that are dying because they're unwilling to step aside unwilling to equip and to train those who are coming up. David has helped to create a lower level of leadership that is ready to take his place. You know, it's funny, most dictators, right, they dread the fact that there are others like them, right, and they seek to eliminate them, right, because they are seen as competition. It's not so with David. And it shouldn't be with us either. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you have trials in your lives, those trials should require you to inquire. Seek the presence of the Lord. And as you consider the providence, as you consider the sustaining power of God in your life, that should require you to admire Him, to enter into a preparedness to um, write a song of thanksgiving, as David does here. And then Christian leadership should also require us to retire. You should do such a good job that you can step aside and know that those who are coming after you will do an even better job than you did. We're going to go into corporate prayer. I'm going to close this time right now. And then, uh, let's see, Brian McWilliam. Brian McWilliam is going to close our corporate uh, time. And you can go a little after 1215 because I'm a little, a little late. Right. Our Father in Heaven, thank you again for your precious word. Uh, Lord God, we... Uh, thank you for this opportunity even now uh, to seek your presence in prayer. And uh, thank you for the tremendous uh, privilege that is ours, too, to uh, intercede on others' behalf. And so we just, uh, again, uh, give you thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.